This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on spinal cord compression. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Spinal cord compression is an extremely serious disorder that can have devastating consequences. These include weakness of the legs, bladder and bowel dysfunction and loss of sensation. Rapid diagnosis and treatment can make a big difference to the outcome, so it's vital that we get the diagnosis and management of this condition right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Professor Kenneth Casey, Clinical Associate Professor in Neurosurgery at Michigan State University. And importantly, Kenneth is author of our BMJ Best Practice topic on spinal cord compression. So Kenneth, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is spinal cord compression? So the good news about spinal cord compression is it can be thought of very easily by holding a banana in your hand, believe it or not. That'll make it very simple for the everybody. I teach the residents this the same way. The banana, you acting like a newspaper reporter, and very simple tools, a safety pin and a Mark one eyeball, and we're off and running. But compression occurs when you take that banana and slowly begin to squeeze it. If it still has its covering on, that's the best situation. That's when we're rel- relatively normal, that we haven't had any damage to the spine. But if the covering comes off, you can imagine that the inside banana is quite easily squeezed. And those two situations basically sum up spinal cord compression. So if you think spinal cord compression, banana being squeezed, it's that works well. Because it's even as simple as if you have a fall, the banana would get bruised, so will the spinal cord. So we divide spinal cord compression into two main categories. Category one is traumatic, and category two is atraumatic. Category one's kind of simple if you think about it, because when we're taking the history, acting like a newspaper reporter, it's what, who, when, how, and then the big one for all of us is physicians, why? So when you say what, the patient says, well, I was in a car crash or whatever on the traumatic side. We'll come and spend a little more time on the atraumatic. And then the when, obviously you've got that from the accident. The why is that you want to find out what happened to the spinal cord and and the exam that you have from the patient right in front of you is going to fix all that. So traumatic spinal cord injury and compression occurs in probably somewhere between 1% to 4%, depending on where you are in the world, with the type of accident. In the U.S., for example, cars lead the list, although falls are starting to catch up. In other countries that I've been to, for example, uh, in Africa, there are many many more occupational type injuries, uh, people getting hurt on the job and so on, whereas in Europe, in the north, Because of the aging of the population, there's a goodly number of falls, especially in Germany. They report that now as their number one reason for spinal cord, traumatic spinal cord compression. So I think that one is fairly fairly straightforward. You know you're going to take some imaging studies. Here, surprisingly, plain films are useful. 
a plane x-ray can show you whether the spine is in its normal alignment or clearly off where one vertebrae has slid off another or even worse, cracked and broken, which would lead you to the diagnosis. You've done that because in your exam, you did a very simple thing. You took your safety pin, you opened the pin side and you went from the patient's head, which is where the pin sensation starts and you head down to the foot. Because obviously, if it stops somewhere along the way, that's quote, your level. And a lot of people say, well, why not start at the bottom and work up? Well, if they've had an injury, they may not feel it at the bottom as well as you would like, and you don't get your level. And for neurosurgeons, the level, that is the place along the skin at which it stops, helps us a great deal. For example, generally we know that at the nipples, that's the fifth thoracic vertebrae level. And if we're at the hips, that's the first lumbar level. And if we're at the foot, that's the fifth lumbar level in terms of the nerve roots. So that very quickly gives you an idea of where am I. On the hands, on the palm, it's more or less the fifth or sixth vertebral level So in the cervical spine. So that gives you a, a quick way to figure out my level because then you can help your radiologist by directing them to where you want the pictures, the level. So the plain x-ray, obviously in trauma, almost always a CT scan, which is a computed tomographic scan. And then in areas where it's available, the MRI. But I'd caution you that in trauma, the MRI immediately is not as important as CT scan and find out how unstable the spine has become. And the way to figure that out is due to a Frenchman named Denis, D-E-N-I-S. And he came up with the idea that the vertebral bodies and the spinal column have three areas, the front third, the back third, and the middle third. So his column of threes. The front third is two thirds of the vertebral body to what's called the anterior ligament. The middle is kind of the key. That's the, at the posterior one third of the vertebral body plus the cord and the, and the pedicles. And then the back half is the back half of the pedicles, which are the two places where the bone comes down like a little house guarding the spinal cord all the way out to the spinous process. If two out of the three columns are broken, the spine's unstable. So even if the person doesn't now have any signs of a spinal cord injury and trauma, if the spine's unstable, you need to fix that stabilize it and stabilize it is what the word implies somehow get some things around it whether it's in the field whether you're just using a litter and a sheet all the way through to what goes on in the hospital but the point is you have to stabilize early in trauma so you avoid further compromise to the cord or even starting to compromise so that's that's trauma we can come back to it if you like but in a traumatic now we have a now we have a problem there's the risk factors and those different things and we'll try to deal with them quickly. But to me, the easiest one to remember, pretty much across the board for spinal cord compression that's atraumatic, is unfortunately, it's ageism. As we get older, our spine simply ages and as it does, it gets itself into some trouble that we'll deal with. So that's the who, more aged, than young, except for the category of what's called spinal epidural abscess. 
that's the drug users, but because that's now become a worldwide phenomena from 15 through 90, uh, ageism doesn't quite apply, but again, more people are in the middle group there. So that's again, the who and the what is the key to getting the five categories separated. So what are the five categories that cause spinal cord compression? Well, number one is bone. So that's called spondylosis, which from the Greek and the Latin is very simple. Spondy means spine or vertebral, and losis means problem. So the Greeks were pretty straightforward that way. I have a spine problem, spondylosis. That's the most common across the board, and in, especially in age 55 and above, it's the number one cause, and it's usually in the neck, the cervical spine, in spondylosis. And you can have spondylosis very uncommonly in the thoracic spine, and people would say, well, why? Not much more, because of the rib cage. The rib cage provides a lot of stability. The lumbar spine, unfortunately, is back to the problem area because now it's freed on the pelvis. So that's the second most common, cervical, lumbar, and last, thoracic or spondylosis, bone problems. Now, you can have disc problems, obviously those little fellows hiding out in between the bones, and that occurs, again, more in the cervical, next in the lumbar, least in the thoracic. And in the lumbar, almost always the one to think about there is something called Cauda-Coyna syndrome, which is a constellation of weak legs or just not feeling right in the legs, legs don't hold me up, to my bowel and bladder just don't feel right. You don't want to wait all the way till retention in the story. I'll give a quick story of, in my own setting. A girl in her 20s was out ice skating, fell, got up right away, kept skating. But by the time she was done take, skating and taking off her skate, she thought, my feet don't feel right. And she thought, well, I'm, they're just cold. So she went home, went to sleep in the night, got up once or twice and thought, I'm really struggling to pee just went back to sleep. Come morning time, there was urine on the bed. Her legs felt very, very numb. And her mom rushed her, so rushed her over to us. And sure enough, fairly large ruptured disc in between those two bones and it had been com compressing the space. Now the spinal cord ends at L1 in the lumbar spine, but the cord then, sorry, the roots hanging down the horse's tail, which is why it's called cauda equina syndrome in the Latin, is where they, they got squeezed, they just didn't have enough room. Now with spondylosis, there's always two major possibilities. Literally the bone is squeezing our banana from the covering and the banana at the same time, or the problem is causing the arterial supply to the spinal cord to be affected. In other words, you have one big artery in the front, two little ones in the back, and if either one of those is getting compressed by the bony ridge, then the core just isn't getting enough blood supply. And we have what sounds like a brain stroke, except it's a cord stroke in the sense that you have ischemia, cord doesn't work as well, especially when you want it to work. So that's spondylosis. The next most common is metastatic spinal cord compression. About five to 10% of all patients who have a tumor run the risk of having spinal cord compression from the tumor. And it occurs two ways. Tumor cells get into the bloodstream, find their way to the vertebral bodies. They grow in the vertebral body. 
and then the body either becomes unstable and the spine starts to move around, or they literally push out and again squeeze our banana from the front. The second less common, but very common in the pelvic spine, and I'm sorry, in the pelvis tumors, prostate and so on, is that they'll get into the venous side of the spinal cord. So we were talking about arterial compression earlier now, we're talking about all those veins outside the spine, especially if any of you have ever done a spinal tap and you get that little bit of blood, that's hitting one of those veins on the way in, which is not bad, but sort of unnerving when you see it. In any case, the cells get into that area and then they slowly start to grow and grow and grow. And if you can't, if you can get the blood in, but you can't get it back out in any organ in the body, malfunction occurs. So that's most common for metastatic spinal cord compression. The two very least categories that are left is spinal epidural abscess, and many times you'll see it in print as SEA, and then spinal epidural hematoma, SEH. SEA is about 1% or so of spinal cord compression in the world, but unfortunately, when people relook at it, they see the numbers sliding up to as high as 4 or 5%. And why is that? Because of the increasing use of intravenous drug use across the country. It's probably the number one cause. So there's a red flag. If the person was or is an intravenous drug user or used needles that someone else used, even if they're a diabetic or something like that, that can certainly get them into the situation of spinal epidural abscess. Most common cause is staph, staph epidermidis or staph aureus, which all of us have on our skin, so that's how it gets in there. And then the other is pseudomonas and so on, a lot less common. So really, if you're seeing somebody like that, we'll get the treatment in a second, but those are the causes. Last one, as I said, is spinal epidural hematoma. Again, very rare usually, except in the world now, all of a sudden, everybody wants to either get a spinal injection or they're going to get some sort of anesthesia that way. Young ladies in childbirth that are particular of interest there. And then the overwhelming use of blood thinners around the world. Again, ageism, you get a little older, heart gets a little funky. Next thing you know, the doctor says, here, take this pill to thin your blood. Well, your spine is not exactly happy with that because it's moving all the time and it gets little tears and you... You get the, the, if you talk to the people who are on any one of the blood thinners, they'll tell you, oh yeah, I get little bruises on my arms all the time. They, you know, I last a couple of days and they go away. I don't remember having that before. And we tell them, yeah, those are the people that you worry about because if they get a little normal tear in a vein, it may not stop and then they'll get compression. So we said earlier, the things that compress the spine to summarize it is blood, either blood that isn't getting there or too much on the outside squeezing, bone, disc, and tumor. And then infection, okay. infection is a big deal because again, very unexpected in a wide range of groups. And infection does one thing that's very, very different. When you examine them and you get your level, you have to be very careful because it's on the outside of the dura. In other words, sitting outside our banana cover. And it has no problem sliding up and down the spine over multiple levels. So here, your exam is going to be a little less hopeful, but it'll still 
say in your head, hey, wait, this could be several levels. And so we'll come to imaging in a second. Thank you very much, Ken. That's really helpful. And possibly one of the longest and most helpful answers we've had on this podcast. It's uh, absolutely fantastic, though. So much useful information. Um, tell us about tests for atraumatic. What tests should you do to diagnose atraumatic spinal cord compression? For atraumatic spinal cord compression, after your exam, which again is spinal level with the pin, and the Mark I eyeball, what's the easiest way? Have the patient lean up against the wall or sit in a chair. If they can't hold themselves against the wall, we're thinking cervical spine. If they have trouble getting up and down out of the chair, we're thinking either thoracic or lumbar. And if they can't stand on their tiptoes, then we're thinking lower down lumbar spine. So with that in mind, you go to imaging. What's the usefulness of x-ray? Well, in trauma, a lot. In infection, somewhat, and then the rest, useless. There's, there's no value to taking it, an older person in their 50s or 60s and doing an x-ray of the neck because you'll just see bony changes that the Lord sent down for us to live with. CT scan, which is available now worldwide, or at least much more in the world than previously, is pretty useful for spondylosis because you'll see bony ridging. You may even see misalignment where the vertebral bodies aren't lined up. Not very useful in the thoracic spine at all. And in the lumbar spine, it's certainly the first test that almost everybody gets. But and at least in the Western world, the epidemic of too many lumbar surgeries is because people look at the picture, not the patient's story, and they get an operation. What's the definitive one for all of the categories? Disc, bone, tumor, infection, and hemorrhage, the MRI. The magnetic resonance imaging, and especially in the spinal epidural abscess and the metastatic spinal disease, you need contrast material, which in most parts of the world is called gadolinium. And that will give you a very good diagnosis. And again, in spinal epidural abscess, its value is it'll show you the levels. The CT scan is much more limited the MRI is going to get you over several levels. Lab values, almost completely useless in all of them, except for spinal epidural abscess. Surprisingly, white count doesn't help. What does, though, is two simple tests, erythrocyte sedimentation rate, and if it's greater than 20, that has about an 87% specificity or likelihood that it's telling you there's a problem, and then C-reactive protein. That one's not as specific, it's in the 60s, but if you put the two together, you get close to a 90% likelihood that, that an infection or inflammatory process is, in, is part of the problem that you're looking at. So those are basically the imaging and laboratory tests that are of value. Thank you, that's really helpful. And let's move on to management. Could you t talk us through the mainstay of management uh, of both traumatic and atraumatic? So management in traumatic involves really, as I said, two steps. Where's my cord injured? My x-ray tells me how stable or unstable is my spine with the three columns that we looked talked about earlier. And again, for the most of the people in the world, if you have neurologic signs in trauma, assume the spine is unstable because there's a little devil in the background called 
spinal cord injury without rankinographic abnormality. It was described by some of my colleagues at the University of Pittsburgh years and years ago, but what it means simply is in children, the ligaments are so loose that they can slip their bone forward, mash their cord, and everything slips back into place by the time you see them. And so the films look normal. The MRI, I'm sorry, the CT scan looks normal. Sometimes even the MRI can look normal and you don't see any changes, but the exam will tip you off. In adults, I'm sorry, in children, that happens about 20% of the time. In adults, 9%. So you have to have that one in the back of your mind in trauma uh, because it's just a real possibility. So then what's the big question? You got to stabilize, decompress and stabilize. There's a lot of studies about how fast you need to get to decompression, whether it needs to be within six hours or 24 hours. It's not settled. It's an ongoing argument. So my advice to anybody, when you get the patient, there's a clock running in your mind to get it fixed. So it shouldn't be a couple of days. So Zachary Cope always said, the sun should never rise or set on an acute abdomen. That's pretty good for spine as well. Don't sit on it, get it moving, either get it to the right center or refer it, but it has to be stabilized. And you can do that immediately yourself. Like I said, with just wrapping the patient in a, a something as simple as a uh, sheet on up to all the different boards that exist and so on. So that's it, that's traumatic. Atraumatic, as I said, it, here we're back to the who and the why. Older patient, gait, not not quite right, and that's the number one symptom in cervical and uh, lumbar spondylosis, is that the gait's not right. I just don't feel right when I'm walking. And their MRI is your first choice if you have it available. CT myelography, where you put the CT scan and a little bit of dye around the spinal cord is your second choice. As I said before, for spinal epidural abscess and spinal epidural hematoma, don't worry about the labs get your pictures, and there you're almost stuck, so to speak, with MRI, because the other two aren't going to give you enough information to make a decision about really anything. And the treatment for spinal epidural abscess used to be fairly quickly a surgery where you took the bones off the back of the spinal laminectomy and left some room. But nowadays, probably about 20, 25% of people in the world with mild neurologic symptoms and severe back pain, which gets worse when you percuss, that's probably your first exam sign. You can treat them with antibiotics, typically one that covers staph and resistant staph, and they'll get better if you watch them carefully and the number that go on to surgery and get into trouble is actually under 20% worldwide. But that's still, to me as a neurosurgeon, a big enough number that I usually tell folks, when in doubt, fix it. And fix it means find the levels, open it up, and take the bone off and decompress it. Same for epidural hematoma. For metastatic spinal, now we got a real problem. First of all, you have to decide, is it unstable? And there's this rather useful uh, thing, which is typically called the spinal cord instability index. And you look at the location, in other words, thoracic which is most common for metastatic, cervical, and lumbar, the lumbar being least common except for prostate. And then you make a decision, do I have a lytic lesion, meaning it's chewed up the bone, that's the worst, or blastic lesion, which is causing the bone to expand, expand that's probably okay. And then again, we're back to our three columns. Is it involving just the bone? Is it getting my pedicles? 
is it getting the posterior elements? Because if the ligaments go nine times out of 10, just like when you twist your knee, the ligaments are going to win and more importantly, lose the battle. So that would be the, the different ways of treatment is in the neck, decompress or shave off the bones in the front called a vertebrectomy and a fusion, which is not always as necessary as people think. And a thoracic spine, almost always posterior decompression, except for tumors where you might have to go through the chest, take out the bone and stabilize the spine from the front. And lumbar, which fielder's choice, but most people tend to go straight back or minimally invasive surgery with endoscopes and taking out disc and even some cases pus and uh, certainly blood in that way. Okay, thank you. And what about... Um, radiotherapy or medical treatment with steroids and chemotherapy. Can you tell us about that a bit? Okay. Um, the use of dexamethasone in both cervical spondylosis, lumbar spondylosis, metastatic disease has been widely practiced. Uh, a recent Cochrane study, which is that group in England that uh, amassed as much literature as they could find, certainly said you have to be a little careful. You can't think this is it and carry the patient along for a long time because there's a significant number of adverse effects for long-term steroid use. And anybody who takes care of folks with osteoarthritis or rheumatoid and stuff would, would be able to nod their heads at that one. So dexamethasone has a role. If you think it's epidural abscess or epidural hematoma, not going to have any effect wasting your time, move on directly to therapy. Now, in the metastatic spinal cord, as I said, you'll start the steroids sometimes just to buy time and stabilize the neurologic symptoms. The discussion about radiotherapy versus surgery is an important one because now we're down to the pace of the patient. If the patient says, two weeks ago, my legs felt a little funny, and now they're much worse, that pace is too quick and you need to do something more dramatic. So steroids, chemotherapy, or radiotherapy aren't going to help you. Whereas if the person says, you know, I've had about six or eight months of bad back pain, and you do imaging, and here's several lesions at several different levels of the spine, okay, now you have a patient whose neurologic exam, as long as it remains normal, can be treated with steroids. And then after a biopsy, because obviously you need that, the question is it radio sensitive or radio resistant? And then the last and the least common nowadays would be straightforward chemotherapy. The new baby on the block, so to speak, is immunotherapy. And the immunotherapy is uh, really taken hold, especially in neurologically stable, multi level spinal cord injuries or compression from metastatic disease because it, it's been very effective. Okay, thank you very much, Kenneth. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other diseases. Thank you once again.